0: Amen. Oh, that has to be one of my favorite lines of any hymn or song, The Solid Rock, when we see Him face to face, just standing on His righteousness. Indeed, that is an unbreakable hope, a one that cannot be undone. And what a glory it is to, to sing together that, that we stand on Christ and Him alone. That's what we do as we gather together as the church. That's what we praise Him for. And as kind of a capstone message to our discussions about the church. We're going to look here about the mission of the church returning to the book of Ephesians. So it was five years ago when we preached through the book of Ephesians, and as we came to the end, we did a message like this, where we surveyed the book of Ephesians, this letter written to a local church, that uncovers what is the mission of the church as it unfolds in this book, and we're going to revisit that. We've been talking in the past month about what it means to care for the body in the local church what it means to to hold fast to the local church, to hold fast and look out for one another spiritually, what it means to be a member in the local church. And we've looked and talked about forgiveness and grace in the local church last week. But we're going to take one last message, and then we'll be, Lord willing, diving back just routinely through Matthew. But to consider this Sunday, what is the church for? What is the mission of the church? What, What are we called to do? We're called to come together and be together, but for what? What's our goal and mission? So that's what we'll revisit this morning. But before we just dive in, just take one more moment with me, if you would, and let's just ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray together. Indeed, O Father, we thank You mercifully for giving us Your Word, and we pray for special help that You would give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of You, that we would more than merely hear words, but by Your Spirit, we would have understanding that we would, in what we hear, we would hear the voice of the Lord as your word is proclaimed and held forth. And as we read and as we look at your truth, that indeed it would be the word of the Lord that transforms hearts. That it would be your word that goes forth, that quickens and brings life. It's your word that convicts. It's your word that heals. It's your word that magnifies the name of Christ. It's your word that changes us and makes us like your son. It's your word that flashes forth, we read, as flames of fire that shakes the wilderness such that all that hear it, that hear you proclaim glory. May we do that this morning, and that would only be by your equipping and your work. Indeed, we, we need you. That's why we come to your word to revive our soul, to make us wise, to rejoice our heart and to enlighten our eyes and to make us righteous following after you. So help us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our God, our rock, and our Redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we live in a customized, individualized world, don't we? The old Burger King slogan, have it your way, has seemed to permeate all of life, Where all life is customizable such that you can have it your way. Of course, you can get the personalized license plate or your own special phone and the way it looks, your personalized house, cars, cabinets. Or as you get on the internet, the way everything's personalized, you got your personalized curated shopping and entertainment choices just effortlessly by advertisers and others given to you. All catered to you, all to reflect special you. This is what we expect of life, such that. We can even paint the gospel, the the message of Christianity, like that very same way. The the most popular gospel tract of this past generation began that way. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It really seems to put you, the hearer, doesn't it, right at the center, as if it's some kind of gospel advertisement. We're trying to sell you on Jesus. The gospel is good for you. It's good for you and your own individual, personal life. But here's the thing. What is that wonderful plan and purpose that God has for you, even if you become a Christian? Because if you become a Christian and then you hear that God's will and His plan for you is revealed in His Word, you start going through the Word, looking for God's special, individualized, have-it-your-way plan for your life, you're never going to find it in that book like that. You're never going to come across something that says, oh, the book of Rick Zaman, written for him. God says to do... No, it doesn't say that, does it? That's not how his word's given to us. And nor should you be expecting some voice from God to say, Rick, this is God. I have something for you to do. No, he gives us his word and guides us by his spirit. But you know what you will find as you go through the New Testament and go through all these commands that are given here You find plenty of commands, but as we've been talking about as we've been working in Matthew's gospel, they're not written to you necessarily personally, individually, though of course it applies to you as an individual. But who's it written to? It's written to, we're in the South, right? It's written to y'all. These commands, these letters in the New Testament are written to churches, they're written to groups of Christians. They're written to you all as a call that we have this Christian life we lead together or live together. And that you all that's written to in so many of these books, like here in Ephesians and the commands that are here, they're not written to just Christians in general most of the time. These are commands written to Christians that have gathered and assembled into a local church. These are commands given to tangible, local, you can see them, you can count them, churches. You know who they are. And so then if you're a believer in Christ, because you ought to start there, but if, you're, if you trust Christ, what's God's wonderful plan for your life? Or really, I can get to the same answer by posing this question. Really, what is God's tool? What's God's instrument that He has established to accomplish His plan in the world? Who or what is God doing or using to accomplish His work and will on the earth? You know what it is? The local church. That's how He's going to do this. God's plan for your life is spelled out in these New Testament letters that instruct not merely individual Christians, but he's directing local churches about what God's will and purpose is for them. And that means for all of us as members of those churches. As a Christian, God's plan for your life is to be involved in the local church because that's really how God's plan will spill out in this world and spread God designs to accomplish His mission in the world through faithful local churches. So then if you're going to engage God's mission, if you're going to be joining God as a follower of Jesus, as a member of His kingdom, if you're going to join God's mission, what does that mean you need to do? You need to join the local church's mission. So what is the local church's mission? That's what we'll explore this morning. And by that, I don't mean what is the special individualized Mission of Grace Bible Church of Midlothian. Okay, I guess there's a place to think about those things. But we're dealing with biblical priorities here that the Lord has clearly told us. We're dealing with what is the mission is for every local church. And it really comes in three parts. And to help you memorize it, they all start with E. We are called to exalt, we are called to edify, and we're called to evangelize. Those three parts make up our mission of what God has called us to as the local church. So let's see that unfold as we Scamper here through the book of Ephesians. And the first is this let's exalt Christ's name together. And I want to highlight we're going to exalt, this is our mission, what we're redeemed for is to exalt Christ's name. But it's not even individual, even as you're gathered here in this room. It isn't merely about your personal response to Jesus, it's about our fellowship together with Jesus. So this is something we do together. All of these are. And that's the point we're getting at with these commands to the church. We are called as the church to exalt Christ's name together. This is why God redeemed us. This is why God created us as the church and adopted us. It's for His glory, His exaltation to magnify His name. And that should come, I think, as little surprise to many of us here. Because really, His glory or praise, that's the purpose of everything, isn't it? That God has made. That's what we teach our children. Why did God make everything? And all the parents of toddlers say, for His glory. And the church is no different. That's why we were made. That's why we were redeemed, forgiven, and saved. It's for not just so you feel good about having peace with God, but you were made to glorify Him, to exalt His name. And that's evident here as the book of Ephesians opens. For as we begin in verse 3 of chapter 1, it begins with praise. That's where Paul opens, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, that's a praise, that's exalting Jesus or God the Father. But even in Paul's praise and blessing he throws upon God, we hear about why he's praising God. He's praising God because of God's work of redemption and salvation But see further, because he talks about the intention or purpose behind those blessings. Paul's praising God for God's mercy upon the Ephesians, but he expels out here, God has a design for that mercy for the Ephesians. What is God up to? So let's read it. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 and follow me. Look and listen for God's purpose or intention or design. Why did he make the church? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Okay, so you hear about all these blessings now. But now we're moving to the purpose of God's will. This is His plan. We're uncovering what's God up to with all of this. Because apparently it's more than just to get us all to heaven. Because otherwise we could already be there. He has a plan for us here. What is it? Verse 6. That we would be to the praise of His glorious grace. With which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That's Jesus. But why, why has He done all this? What's God's will and purpose and plan and design, but that we would exist, that we would exist to the praise of His glorious grace, or more literally, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And those three words, praise, glory, and grace, well explain for us this first purpose of the church. So let's take each one of those. First, praise which that means to express admiration. That means to express approval. This is what we call worship. The old meaning of the term, it's ascribing worth to something. It's ascribing significance and value. We're saying that's praiseworthy. That's worthy of extolling, exalting. That's worthy of our attention, maybe of our devotion. We highlight, and what we're called to do is call attention from everyone else to the greatness of our God. This God that we've come to know personally, yes, through the gospel, by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but why? But for His praise. We were designed for this. We were redeemed for this. And again, that should come as no surprise, because understand, just in creation. By mere creation, we were bent on praise. This, this drive to praise and worship is universal. And if you don't think so, you should have watched some college football yesterday. And you'll see that people are driven to praise things. We are driven to scream and to extol and to shout and to delight. I mean, those fanatics are devoted, aren't they? People, we, we turn on the TV, we showed up at these events because we want to see something amazing. We want to see something and then go, Did you, could, you, could you believe that? Look how he caught that ball, whatever it is. Incredible. We, we want to cheer, we want to clap, we want to praise, we want to we be in awe. Because that's what we were made. We want to glory in our team's victory. Of course, the trouble is, even as we've been made to worship and praise in our sin, We look to praise and extol anything or everything else except one, the one to whom it's really due, the only true God. And so led by the devil, we're bent. We have this idolatrous bent that that has infected all of us such that we are all glory stealers. We're all keeping credit from whom the one it's due. And so often, we're just trying to steal it for ourselves. We're just really ourselves, living for ourselves instead of for the God who made us. Instead of living for our God and by His Word, what do we do? We, We try and find our own customizable, personalized way of living my life. That's idolatry. And as we see, as that's a pursuit of rebellion... Sin against the God who gives life—that means as well—it's a—it's a a suicidal pursuit. It only leads to death. But in His mercy, of course, this is the gospel. This is the good news. God has not left all creation to to this suicidal self-worship, and so He intervenes. And most gloriously in the gospel, God came down from heaven—Jesus Christ and he came to live a life you could never live, so then he could be innocent. And as an innocent one, then he can die for other people's sins, which is what he did. For all that trust him, the sins were put on Jesus, and he died for them, fulfilling the justice and wrath of God. But he did not stay dead because he's God, and he rose from the dead. So now he's alive, and he forgives all that call upon him. But why? Just so you can get mercy? Well, It is so you can get mercy, just so you can know God's peace. Yes, it is so you can know his peace, but that's not all. He was coming in to reclaim worship, to recreate in this world hearts that love him, hearts that fulfill what they're designed for, hearts that praise God as they were redeemed for. Like we read in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, we read this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But why? Why why did he go to this effort? Why, Why did he make you this special people? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why. He redeemed you to tell something, to say our God is gracious to sinners. Let me show you. He's been gracious to me. This is our mission, to proclaim His excellencies, to give Him the worship He's worthy of. And it all starts right here with the redeemed, the church. Or back to the language here of Ephesians 1, we were blessed, we were chosen, we were predestined, we were adopted, we were redeemed, but for what? But for the praise of His glory which takes us to that next term. What are we praising but the praise of His glory? That's His greatness. His glory is His significance, His weightiness. His glory is His. Is that summation of all of those mind-blowing characteristics that, that distinguish Him as God, that He's He's not creaturely. He's the creator. He's not created. He's the only creator. He made them. He's different. He's separate. Such that in creation, it was fitting to have angels that only exist in his presence to do one thing, to surround him and proclaim forever. Holy, Isaiah 6, 3 reads, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or in response to the astounding rescue of the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, Moses and Israel sing together like what we read in Exodus 15, verse 11. In response to that great redemption, what can they say but this? Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you among the gods? That is, who is like you among all the things praised, all the things worshipped, all the things devoted to, all the things sacrificed for? None of them compare to you. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, he says, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Who is like you? And obviously the response is, nobody's like this God. And indeed, our mission as the church, why we're redeemed, is to let all the world know the significance, the gravity, the magnitude, and the greatness of this Christ, That's what we mean when we say we're called to magnify the Lord. And all credit goes to John Piper for exploring that picture for us so helpfully. He notes that when we magnify God, you need to be really clear about this, because we magnify God like a telescope, not like a microscope. What do microscopes do? They take something that's really itty-bitty and very small, something that's very, in that way, insignificant... And it brings it closer to your eyes, so to speak, so you can see it, so you can understand it. Makes it appear much bigger than it really is. We do not magnify God at all like that. We magnify God like a telescope magnifies the moon. The moon, to our mind's eye, so to speak, it appears very small in the sky, maybe the size of a quarter. But a telescope, what's it doing? It, it's magnifying it, bringing it to appear to your eye something like at least closer to what it really is. That's what we do when we magnify God for one another and for the world. Our God is not small, He is not insignificant. And we want our words, the things we say about Him, we want our lives and the way we live to highlight that weightiness, that significance, the hugeness of this God. To a world that says, oh, I don't see him. Oh, I don't see him working. I don't believe in him. Or he's very small. He's like that guy upstairs. We don't really know what he's up to. Or he's just very far away. I don't think he cares. Well, this is what our praise is to do. Is to highlight the glory and the weightiness. And to magnify our God. To glory in his grace. Which takes us to that next piece. The praise of the glory of his grace. That is what is it about our God that's so weighty? So significant? That the world just can't see. Well, the theme that surfaces throughout the book of Ephesians is this attribute about him that he's gracious. That he's really gracious. Really more than you know. If you've read Ephesians before, you just know God's grace predominates this book. Many of you have memorized different verses of the Bible to maybe help understand the gospel. And if you did, you probably memorized Ephesians two eight. for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God. That's what grace means. It's a gift. That's not the only place. It's all over this book. But look there, look at Ephesians 2, and I want to start in verse 5. In five, verse 5, he's picking up something he had said just moments ago. We looked at it last week, actually. He says, even when you were dead in your trespasses, he mentioned in verses one to three, you're dead in your sins, your trespasses. You are spiritually dead to God. You offer him nothing. You offer him debts. You bring nothing positive to the table. You're a rebel and your children destined for wrath, said in the end of verse three. But then verse, 5, verse four, you got to start there, but God, There's you, not so good, but God. This is good news. But God, being rich in mercy. Remember, we talked about that last time. Because of the great love with which he loved us. This is what dominates what our God is like, more than you understand. Such that, on to verse 5, even when we were dead. That is, you brought nothing good to the table. You brought nothing like as an advantage to the equation. You were a debt. You were a loss on his ledger. Even still, though, that doesn't stop him, you see. Even still, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul just has to interject, by grace you've been saved. If that's not obvious already, because what is grace? You are rescued from the wrath of God as a gift. You didn't do anything for it. It had to be that way. If you had even 1% or a percentage of a percent to offer on the table, trust me, you would lose this salvation. But he made us alive together with Christ and as a gift. And verse 6 goes on. And raised us up with him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Such that you can go to other places like Colossians. When the father looks at you, he sees his love for his son there. (laughs) I mean, that is nuts. How can God do that? I mocked him. I raised my fist at him. I don't want your life. I don't want your salvation. And he redeemed and showed mercy anyway but do you know the wrongs I've done? I've known them all, Rick, and I paid for them all. I'm telling you to come. And we know how good that is. To be loved. To be shown forgiveness, right? We talked about that last week. To be accepted. More than that, to be treasured by this God. But why? That's the question we're dealing with. Why? Why? Just so we can feel secure and better about ourselves? No, look at verse 7. Here's what it's for. He tells us why did God do all these things? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God choose to save us and love us, though we were so undeserving? it's not about you. That's the answer. What's it about? Why did he do this? He did this to show off, to not show off how great he thought you were, but he's showing off how abundantly merciful he is, that he might show for eternity that all the angels and all the redeemed would look for all creation and look at the immeasurable riches of his grace. He is more kind than you can imagine. That's what all eternity is going to proclaim. Not that, wow, look at these great people that are here, but look at this great Savior who can save them, who are like this. He did this to show off, to show off to his angels, to show off to all the redeemed, to show off to our great enemy. You tried, but I redeemed even them. In that sense, brother and sister, We will stand, you will stand as a brother, sister, as exhibit A, that God is merciful forever in heaven, that he can forgive even great sinners like you and me, such that in heaven, countless numbers are going to be walking around and be like, dude, what's Rick doing up here? Why is he in this place? And what's going to be the answer? Because God's marvelous grace. That's why. That's the only reason why. His glorious grace alone. That's what the church is for, for the glory of God. And we see it. If you look at the end of chapter 3, you come to the conclusion of that doxology, that praise that ends Paul's prayer. And that's the very thing he asks for. Not to him, verse 20 of chapter 3, not to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's passion and plan for the church, his glory. That's why he saved us, to praise his glorious grace. And so then really, what's the most straightforward way you can get at this? You worship him. Literally, the most straightforward thing you can do is to praise him. If God has given you the ability to open your mouth and proclaim his excellencies, regularly gather with the church and open up your mouth and tell others, sing to others about how great your Christ is. Our works and our songs about resounding God's greatness. Those are all, that's an end in and of itself even. That's worship. That's ascribing praise and worth. And we know as we've walked through the scripture, even Paul in this text, and we don't praise him just when our circumstances go well, do we? That's where this praise testifies to something so much greater. There's a whole other element to it. The New Testament good news is not health, wealth, and prosperity for right now. It's just not. It's just not where things are. God's mission is not right now merely that you would glorify him. But we read here in Ephesians 2, he's setting you apart for all time to be a a, a trophy that he is a gracious God. So that's where we go. In other words, this world, you know this, is very broken, isn't it? Seeing this in fresh ways feel like it's fallen. It's a cornucopia of dashed hopes and broken promises, save one the promise of our God. That He is gracious and merciful to all that look to His Son. And so we as the Redeem, united voices cry out to God in praise. We cry out to one another, and we cry out to the world, our God is great. And He's gracious to those that call upon Him. Call upon Him. Can you not then sense why gathering together in our corporate worship is so very important? This is part of our mission. That's only part of our mission. It's maybe the the chief end goal, you might say, but supported by these other aspects. Namely this, what's this other part to our mission? It's let's edify the church together. This is our call. We are called to build up, to edify the church together, to strengthen the church. And we see that now as we move on to Ephesians and we just jump into the middle of chapter 4 that we read earlier. And you see this task we've been given. It's uncovered there so clearly in verse 12 of Ephesians 4. He says in verse 11, He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, but to do what? They are those leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Well, what's our ministry as saints? And that's Christians, by the way. That's the believers in the church. These aren't special Christians. What is our task? What is our work? Well, the end of verse 12. For building up the body of Christ. Or for edifying the body. For strengthening the body. For establishing and building up the body. Now, you've got to move to that next question. Well, how? Like... What are we building up to? What's the plan? So, for example, if I told you, hey, we have a parking problem these days, and uh, we need to take care of that, so there's a mound out there, and uh, let's get rid of that, and let's pave that spot. Uh, I got some hammers, I got a jackhammer, I got some rocks. Everybody just grab a bag and let's get at it. Okay, even as a parking lot, which should be very simple, uh, it would not go well. If we didn't know what we were doing, if we didn't know what we're supposed to build, especially if I'm involved, it's gonna go really poorly. What do you need? You need a blueprint. You need a model. Otherwise, we're going to have like three parking spots and a lot of bad concrete rolling all over the place out there. You need a blueprint and a model if you're going to build an architectural masterpiece or even just a Lego. So what's the model that we're building the church after? What is it supposed to look like? And we find that answer in verse 13. Here's our goal. Here's what we're aiming for. We're building up the church to look like Jesus. That's our model. Look at verse 13. So we're building up the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that's the end we're striving for as we build one another up. It's so that we can live and look like Jesus, that we can be mature Christians, which means we're little Christ that look like Him. We love like Him. We encourage like Him. We're compassionate like Him. We're gracious like Him. We're just like Him. We're merciful like Him. So we grow up and be like Him, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We want to be like Christ. Christ. And we want to help the rest of the body, the member of the churches, churches get there. And that's what Paul reveals about his mission as an apostle, like in Colossians chapter 1. He says, we proclaim Christ. Christ is our message. The gospel is the word that comes from us. And it's all about Jesus. But he goes on and says, why or to what purpose? Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ grown up to be like Jesus. Or just here in this text, Ephesians 4, you look down in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Our goal in building up the body is to help one another live more and more like Jesus. Letting the examples of our lives for one another and for the world Show what is God graciously and gloriously like. We're to be living embodiments of that and to help one another get there. Well, how do we help one another get there? What is the tool that God has given to shape you and build you up and strengthen you and make you more like Jesus? Okay, well, He's given us the Bible. Yes, you bet. He's given us His Spirit, for sure. But what's the tool that Paul's talking about here? It's you the church itself. The church itself is building itself up to become more like Christ. I mean, do you realize that? God's designed for you as part of the local church, He designed you be in the church to become more like Jesus. They go hand in hand. They go together. Such that, look at verse 7, as He saves and redeems and unites us into this one faith, But grace, verse 7, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we're all united in this one faith, but then he's equipped individual believers as part of the church, all working together to accomplish this great purpose, the church's edification, being mature like Jesus. And so he gives leaders, we saw that, verse 11. He gave the apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. But what is even their role? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. They're not to rule over you. Your elders and pastors and so forth, we are to be chief servants, but we are your equippers. We are equipping you, for then it goes on in verse 12, for the work of ministry for the building up of the body. Your elders and teachers and so forth, what are we to be doing? We're like your personal spiritual trainers so that not we can be fit and you can watch us be fit, but that so we can all grow up and be fit like Jesus, so to speak. So you would fulfill your calling to train and equip every church member to build up the body so that we can all work together. And when we're all equipped and working together, verse 16 is what happens. From whom, from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, what happens? Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So I trust that you see being involved in the local church, it's not about just coming and sitting and watching. You're not in a church body to watch other people minister, it's not a show. It's not about a few paid guys that do church for everyone else to come watch. No, we're equipping the saints, the members, for the work of ministry. Truly, in that way, every member is a minister. If you're a member in the church and been called by Christ, what does that mean? You've been ordained to ministry. Because understand, like sermons, hopefully they're helpful. Hopefully they're from the Word, and the Spirit uses them. And That's by design. That, that fo- unfolds, say, especially in the pastoral letters, First uh, and 2 Timothy and Titus. But just listening to a sermon, even with the saints present, that's not enough to disciple you and make you like Jesus. By design, you need the church to make you like Jesus, you see. Yeah, you need sermons, but that's not enough. You need one-to-one Bible reading. You need fellowship groups. You need small groups. You need discipling. You need biblical counseling. But really what you need is the word with one another, not just with the video or with the podcast. Podcast. You need the church. You need the multitude of ministers, the Christians, holding fast and holding out the Word for one another in the life of the church. So what are you doing to help us as a church dwell richly in this Word? Who are you encouraging? Who are you seeking to build up? Who are you ministering His Word to? Who did you think to pray for this morning as you came in? Because you came in here, you weren't just coming to watch, you were coming to participate, you are coming to fellowship, you are coming to minister the word to one another. Who, Who did you think to pray for? Because the thing is, we need you. We need you. So may we, by His help, prayerfully get to work. That the whole body, being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Everyone has been gifted by Christ with a role to play. How can you sow Christ and His Word in our midst? Which leads us to this last part of our mission, and it's that we are called together to evangelize the world. It's part of the local church. Let's evangelize the world together. And we see that evidenced as we come to the very end of this letter almost. But let it be said that evangelism is commonly confused as maybe the only mission we have as the church. And that's not the case, as we've been talking about and showing already. It's a very important one. It's the Great Commission. But you understand to fulfill the Great Commission, you can't go out and make disciples if you're not exalting Christ's name and building up the body. Because I don't know what in the world you're discipling them into. We'll see this. But nevertheless, that means we have a call and commission to get out with the gospel, to get out with the evangel, to evangelize. And we see that as Paul even asks for prayer here in chapter 6. So he begins and he notes here in chapter 6 toward the end that we are in this spiritual battle, that we are battling against our flesh, The old sinful desires, we're battling against Satan. We are we are to be at war. That means we gotta be vigilant. You gotta be active in this. There's no passivity here. And what would that look like? Well, it looks like a whole host of things that we arm ourselves with as he explores. But going on, that means in verse 18, we're praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And he goes on, to that end, verse 18 in the middle, keep alert with all perseverance. Keep alert in prayer, labor in battle. It's a spiritual war, and the spiritual deed you will do many times is pray. Praying for who all the saints and for me, Paul goes on in verse 19, So, what does the battle look like? What are we praying for for ourselves, for the fellow saints, and even for our ministers? What are we praying about? Here it is, verse 19, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery that is the gospel, the evangel. This is a prayer to engage in. You're going to engage in the spiritual battle through gospel proclamation that's evangelization. And notice this task is a, for Paul and the church, is an obligation. It's a compulsion for us. Look at verse 20 at the end. He says, I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is not an option. Like when you get around to it, this is our mission. But notice this is our mission we hold together. That's why he's asking for help, even pray for me as I go and proclaim the gospel. Or you hear it in other places, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul describes that we've been entrusted with this gospel message. Yes, you've been reconciled, but when you've been drawn near to Christ, he also sends you out with that same message, such that we read this, that we are ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, we're His representatives, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. But I just want to note what we heard there is that we are ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. We implore, even you all, be reconciled to God. This is our message together, church. That we hold and wield and speak together. Not just as individual Christians wherever we might go, but this is a calling that we hold together. At the very least, we need to be praying for one another, but far more. What's the point with this? That is to say, as the gospel goes forth, as we're ambassadors and we speak about the good news of Jesus, of course, we're calling individuals to repent. We're calling individuals to come to Christ and find mercy. But as the gospel goes forth, we're not simply looking for individual decisions. We're not merely looking for individual converts, but we're looking for converts that band together and form churches. That's how we'll fulfill the mission we've been called to. We're not simply looking for converts, but converts that get comprised as a group of new believers, the church that will edify the body and evangelize the lost for the glory of Christ. What's the point? The local church is not ancillary to God's global mission. The local church is integral. It is requisite and it is essential to God's global task to reach the world for the name of Christ. So what does that look like then? How might you pick up and expand the the worship of God and send out the gospel by focusing on the local church? Well, do you realize as you strengthen church life here and build up the body, we become better senders and better missionaries that get sent to foreign fields. So maybe the question is, how can you strengthen the discipling, the edification of becoming more like Jesus here at GBC so we send out better equipped pastors, better equipped missionaries, and better equipped church planners to do a new work. That is, we only export what we are or what we have. If we're an unhealthy church, training unhealthy church members that don't look like Jesus? Well, when we send one another off to foreign fields, we're going to plant unhealthy churches that don't look like Jesus. So maybe God is not calling you specifically to a foreign field, but He has called you to invest in the church that we might grow up and make healthy missionaries and ministers. The local church in that way is like the greenhouse greenhouse for gospelizers who will go out from there and make a healthy gospel message that breeds healthy churches. That's internationally. What about the local mission? How do we fulfill this as part of the church and the local mission? Well, just very plainly, you just need to speak the gospel. And if you wonder how to do that or where to do that, In our church, we got two brothers, faithfully lead ministries down at VCU. Jack Dove, who's been up here a number of times, and Paul Adams, one of our supported missionaries and member here. They're regularly at VCU. Tag along with them. See what God does as you open your mouth. Even just pray for them if you're not ready to share anything. We're trying to equip one another that we can be better with the gospel. But furthermore, consider this too. You don't only have to go out to be able to speak of Christ how can you pull people in to the church? I don't mean dragging them, but how can you intersect church life with other parts of your life? How can you intermingle Christ's people with people that don't know Christ yet in your life? So that is, maybe you're not the best gospel teller. You're like, I'm not a great theologian. I don't have all the answers. Well, nobody is the greatest theologian, to be clear, other than Christ. We all have inadequacies. Maybe you're not the best gospel teller, but you can be a gospel connector. You can be one who connects good members who speak well about Christ to, to others in your life. Maybe you connect them with kids, parents on your, the kids' sports team of yours, or connect them with coworkers of yours. Have them both over to your house. See what the Lord would do. But finally, maybe just for starters, you can start right here. Befriend the stranger, the person sitting right in our midst. You know, week after week, new faces come in here to the worship center between the two services. Many are Christians, some are not. And whether it's a, a traveling Christian coming through or whether it's a wandering unbeliever, they need to see and experience in flesh and blood how gracious gracious our Christ is. And so he's equipped you in calling you to be that experience of grace for that person, embodied. So perhaps your ministry can start right there, befriending or engaging the unengaged person, welcoming them as Christ has welcomed you. And in all these things, the church that fulfills that, fulfills its purpose, is going to bring great glory to God that will be faithful, be one that will spread the name of Christ so that His glory indeed would be in the church. We say that as our mission Say on behalf of the elders, and I trust many of the members here, we're thankful for the way God's working, but we confess too that we are sinners. And that's why we come around this table. For this is what forms us it's what this points to of His body and blood. We're not in Grace Bible Church because we have it all together, or because we love Bible teaching, or we're really serious Christians. We're at Grace Bible Church because we know we're great sinners, but we proclaim that there's a greater Savior. And may that always be the message we send out, not some method, not some mantra, beside this one, Jesus Christ loves and saves sinners. May that be our message. Let's pray it would be. Let's pray together. Indeed, O Christ, we are humbled that not only would you call us in salvation and rescue us, but then you would leave us here to minister for you. Uh, there's so many challenges, as you know, the brokenness of this world, and the brokenness even ourselves, that make being faithful to you hard. Uh, and we confess that we are sinners, uh, but we confess that you're a great Savior, that even all of our sins in Christ have been dealt with. Uh, we confess, too, that you've given us your Spirit and your Word, and, you, and you've called us and equipped us for this, so help us to be faithful. May we be humble servants for you. We're only that because of the cross, and for that we thank you.